welcome to a new weekly podcast series called USERF Spotlight, hosted by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, an independent federal advisory body. During each episode, Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, features a special guest to dive deeper on various topics and breaking developments that impact the universal right to freedom of religion or belief around the globe. Welcome to USERV Spotlight. I'm Dwight Bashir. Today we're going to discuss majoritarianism and its impact on religious minorities in the South Asia region. Unfortunately, we've seen a significant deterioration in religious freedom conditions in the region in recent years, particularly in India, uh, where our commission has recommended for two years in a row now that India be designated by the State Department as a country of particular concern for its systematic, ongoing, and egregious violations of religious freedom. But this downturn uh, is certainly not limited to India. Uh, there's serious concern about developments in Afghanistan with the U.S. withdrawal and the resurgence of the Taliban uh, and the implications there for religious minorities and women in particular, as well as uh, deteriorating conditions in Pakistan over the past year so that it's seen a sharp rise in blasphemy cases, forced conversions, attacks on houses of worship and hate speech and violence targeting religious minorities. Not to mention developments in Sri Lanka and Bangladesh uh, that we'll hear more about uh, today. We're fortunate to have with us uh, Faranaz Ispahani, an expert on religion and politics in South Asia, who has a book coming out later this year on the topic. In 2017, she published Purifying the Land of the Pure, the History of Pakistan's Religious Minorities. She was a member of the parliament in Pakistan from 2008 to 2012 and previously worked as a journalist there, including for Voice of America, Urdu TV. She's currently a public policy scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center and a senior fellow at the Religious Freedom Institute here in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Farhanaz Isfahani. Thank you for joining us today on You Serve Spotlight. Thank you, Dwight. I understand you're putting the finishing touches on your book, focusing on the rise of majoritarianism in several South Asian countries and, and exploring some of the commonalities that run through uh, this phenomenon in, a re in the region. It'd be great if you could begin by giving our listeners a sense of why this trend has been picking up in recent years and how is it impacting uh, religious minorities uh, in particular? Thank you so much. It is such a pleasure to join you today. Um, as you know, Dwight, the last decade or more has seen a rise in majoritarian communalism across large parts of the world. But the situation which I'm working on on a daily basis and which is the basis of my new edited book, it's is particularly bad in South Asia. South Asia, as we know, is home to almost 2 billion people, including followers of every major faith and from all around the world. The rise in religious extremism in this religiously diverse subcontinent is often a function of politics. The countries I cover in my new book, which is tentatively titled, Dominating by Hate, politics and the religion in South Asia are India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka. The book covers the rise of majoritarianism all over South Asia, and in each country, the majority is different, 
But the issue of authorization through laws, violence, and the media in all four countries is the same. In India, we look at Hindutva and the BJP. In Pakistan, we examine the role of successive governments in the persecution of religious minorities through laws, including the blasphemy law and the anti amity laws. With Sri Lanka, we examine Buddhist political power and the role of priests in mob incitement and engendering Islamophobia. And finally, Bangladesh, with a mixed secularist background, with now the increasing strength of Islamist movements like Hifazat, the increased violence against Bangladesh's Hindus, atheists, and Ahmadis is a new political reality. So basically, the rise of majoritarianism and the desire for religiously pure communities is also manifested in the heightened sensitivities among majority populations over interfaith marriages or marriages predicated on the conversion of one spouse. In Pakistan, poor Hindu and Christian girls, sometimes underage, are converted through forced marriages but since the conversion is in the direction of the majority, the legal system tends to ignore the element of coercion. In India, even interfaith marriages resulting from romantic relationships between adults are described as love jihad. Despite the persistence of these allegations, credible data has not been presented to demonstrate the extent and nature of these alleged coerced conversions. So basically, Dwight, there's clearly a regional trend and there's a need to examine it. And my book, which is an edited book and which uh, involves really um, work from some of the finest experts, mainly from these countries, the book, you know, seeks to offer a distinct and original take on the issue of extremist religious hatred within the context of South Asia's politics. Pakistan and India can both be cited as examples of the phenomenon through instances of communal majoritarianism, undermining the rights and protections of minorities, which is also increasing in Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. Here, Dwight is what I think is at the heart of this. Increasingly, leaders are using otherization of the minority as a way to mobilize the majority. So to get Hindu votes in India, you tell your voters that Christians and Muslims have it better than them, that Indian Christians have ties to Western Christianity and are therefore less Indian. And Muslims, even though they have been in India for centuries, are somehow from the Middle East and have sympathies with Pakistan. In Pakistan, a simple, similar otherization by Islamic fundamentalists towards Hindus Christians and Ahmadi Muslims. It's a case of the majority being made to hate and fear the minority and governments that should be protecting the minorities end up being vehicles of persecution. Well, thank you for that detailed explanation. It's a, it's a great intro, I think, into our uh, first question, uh, you know, specific question I wanna ask in your home country in Pakistan, as you well know, perhaps the most notorious country in terms of its lethal blasphemy and anti-Ahmadi laws that you mentioned. But we've also seen a rise in Islamist extremism that some allege is fostered by the government and surrounding institutions like the 
Inter-Services Intelligence, or the ISI as it's known. How would you, uh, how do you see the concept of Pakistan as an independent nation state from 1947? How does that differ from the Pakistan we see today? And what factors have led to the deterioration of religious inclusivity and diversity from that original origin back then? Thank you. Um, Pakistan is, uh, you know, founded as a homeland for British Indians. Muslims has over time become a country where all minorities, both Muslim and non-Muslim, have faced persecution and harassment. And the persecution and harassment is growing every single day in Pakistan. From 23% non-Muslim minorities in the areas constituting Pakistan at the start of 1947, today minorities only comprise 3% of Pakistan's population. Pakistan was ethnically cleansed of its Hindu and Sikh populations at the time of partition, and discriminatory policies and persecution have led to many Christians, Hindus, and Ahmadi Muslims immigrating from the country. You talk about the military and ISI. These institutions dominate the country because Pakistan defines its nationalism through Islam. These institutions foster Islamism as a way of nation building and suppressing ethnic-based nationalism. Islamism is also a way to keep in check political parties that may challenge the military's domination with democratic or liberal demands. Pakistan, as you mentioned in your introduction, has the strongest blasphemy laws in the world and is the only country whose constitution has sought to define who is or who is not a Muslim. We see cases of the misuse of this bad law every day in Pakistan and a shocking example happened just a few days ago. An eight-year-old Hindu boy was accused of blasphemy and was arrested and booked by the police for blasphemy. After high-level intervention, the case was cleared, but his family is still in hiding. The fact that this child of eight is today the youngest person ever to be charged with blasphemy in Pakistan and perhaps the world, tells you something shocking about what has happened to Pakistani society by using Islamism and political Islam, um, you know, to rule the country. So just to close off, I just want to say about Ahmadis in particular, um, Ahmadis have long been persecuted in Pakistan and the constitution of Pakistan does not even recognize them as Muslims. And over the last few years, there has been a rise in attack against Ahmadis. And this fight can be traced to the rise of the Tehreek-e-Labbaik Pakistan, an Islamist militant outfit that rose to fame on the issue of blasphemy and blasphemy alone. So basically, most Islamist groups argue that Pakistan's status as an Islamist republic justifies defending sensibilities of the Muslim majority at the expense of the minorities. At different times in Pakistan's short history, various Islamist scholars have articulated the need for different treatment of Muslims and non-Muslims in light of Islamic law. And so, 
that is where we stand today in Pakistan, and it is a sobering reality. Yes, a sobering reality indeed. And, you know, as we shift gears now, my next question, uh, talking about India. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, with India, for example, the, the RSS, which is the BJP's parent organization, has championed the idea of Hindutva or Hindu nationalism for decades. We know that. But but I want to ask you, how has Hindu nationalism picked up such a rapid pace in India uh, in the past few years? And what is your perspective on the Citizenship uh, uh, Amendment Act's passage in late 2019, which sparked widespread protests across the country in 2020, that police and government-aligned groups met with violence, leading to over 50 people killed and more than 200 injured. You know, as I mentioned up top, the past two years, we've recommended the CPC designation, which the State Department yet has not uh, followed. But it's it's not something we take lightly, uh, but there's been too much there. So I'd love to get your perspective on why this is happening and how Hindu nationalism is, uh, nationalism is factored into this. You know, right. in the past, I had often written and spoken about the fact that what was happening in Pakistan and it happened and was continuing to increase, that these things spread, that when countries, neighboring countries see what can, you can get away with, it, it often leads to Part political parties, populist leaders, um, groups like the RSS, looking at Pakistan's example and thinking, you know, why can't we be more like that? Why can't we Hindus have that status? So in a way, I would say, yes, the BJP has changed India's view of itself from a multi-religious secular vision to a Hindu nationalist one. It has changed India and many Indians' views of themselves as being part of this huge multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-faith melting pot to one where one majority calls the shots and one majority is superior in terms of faith and culture and belonging to India than the others. So today, if we look at <laughs> where we are going to be in the future, by 2050, India will have the world's largest Muslim population, in addition to its majority Hindu population, alongside Christians, Sikhs, Buddhists, Jains, Zoroastrians, and Jews. Over the last few years, there's been a reported increase in violence targeting India's Muslims, um, and also, India's Christians. Other minorities have been targeted, but I would say India's Muslim uh, minority and Christian minority have been the most targeted. And this rise in religious violence, often by vigilante groups that are sometimes condoned by the state, has raised questions about India's religious ethnic stability something that could not even have been imagined in the first five years of India's independence. You asked about the Citizen Amendment Act, the CAA, um, which was passed in December 2019, and but it's called the 2020 Citizenship Amendment Act. And the act amends India's decades-old citizenship law, which currently prohibits illegal migrants from becoming 
Indian citizens. The new bill makes an exception for members of six religious minority communities, Hindus, Sikhs, Buddhists, Jains, Parsis, and Christians. If they can prove they're from Pakistan, Afghanistan, or Bangladesh, and they're fleeing oppression because of their faith. Primarily, the reason this bill is very important is it seeks to keep out Muslims, the only religion explicitly not mentioned in this bill as a virtual statement of a new policy. Um, as you have mentioned about the riots in the past, I won't go over that again, but we have seen um, human uh, rights watchdogs like Amnesty and Human Rights Watch, Muslim academics, human rights activists, former police officers and journalists allege anti-Muslim bias in the investigation of the riots um, by New Delhi police that you mentioned at the outset. Well, let me now shift gears. Thank you for, for that detail. But I want to ask you, you, you focus in your book uh, uh, on a couple of countries that the commission has been following for uh, many years, but right now are not countries that we recommend uh, for either the, the most severe list or the special watch list, uh, but were there nevertheless some uh, troubling developments. So I wanted to ask you, uh, first of all, do you feel that Sri Lanka is following a similar path of India. For example, government officials have recently proposed a series of legislation that's deemed Islamophobic by many. And, and do Buddhist nationalists see Islam as a growing threat? You know, after the 2019 Easter bombings, as you recall there, did the Easter bombings trigger a Buddhist, nationalism, a Buddhist nationalism or is or is it just resurfacing you know, on its own uh, as part of this trend that you've been talking about? Basically, you know, to start off with, I would say Sri Lanka's ethnic clump, uh, conflict, which originally pitted the majority Sinhalese against the minority Tamils has now taken on a religious dimension. So the Buddhist Sinhalese have started targeting Sri Lanka's Muslims some of whom have attacked Christians, as in the Easter attack that you talked about. So basically, while Sri Lanka's constitution accords the foremost place to Buddhism, uh, while it recognizes Islam, Hinduism, and Christianity as religions practiced by Sri Lankans, um, it clearly gives a foremost place, um, which is akin to the Pakistani constitution placing Islam as the foremost religion. So um, I would say that, and all Sri Lankan um, human rights experts, religious freedom experts um, who have been working on this issue, that the Sri Lankan state is engaged in systematic discrimination against religious minorities. And that is becoming worse and worse with every passing day. Yes, the suicide attacks by Islamist extremists um, on Easter Sunday, which killed more than two, 290 people, has in a way given the Sri Lankan government the justification for the crackdowns and the resulting Islamophobia. But um, some of the things that um, they have done at this point make one very nervous about Sri Lanka's future. In just March of this year, 
Sarat Virasekra, uh, Sri Lanka's Minister of Public Security, announced that the government planned on barring the wearing of the burqa, the face covering worn by some Muslim women, and would close more than a thousand Islamic schools across the country. The minister was quoted as saying that the burqa was a sign of religious extremism and had a direct impact on national security. After protests from human rights organizations, the country backed off from this policy. But this policy did reflect rising anti-Muslim sentiments in Sri Lanka. According to the State Department report on international religious freedom, um, that local government officials, police, have responded minimally or not at all to numerous incidents of religiously motivated discrimination and violence against minorities. And religious minorities have also reported that government officials and police often side with Buddhists and did not prevent the harassment of religious minorities and their places of worship. So I would say Sri Lanka is on the wrong track. And if this government um, and uh, the Buddhists, whether it's the monks or other movements of that kind uh, that want a purity or purification of Sri Lanka, much like um, purification was wanted by Islamists in Pakistan, by the BJP and the RSS in India, I see Sri Lanka heading in that direction. And as you know, Dwight, that's the wrong direction to be going in. R wrong direction indeed. Unfortunately, we have to leave it right here. Uh, I want to thank Farhanaz Ispahani for taking the time to join us today to share her expertise and insights about the troubling developments. No other way to say it, really, in the, in the South Asia region. You know, once you uh, we certainly could go much further here and, and hear more of your uh, deeper insights. I think once you get your book out there, when that whenever that comes out, we'd love to have you back to go into more detail. In the meantime, you can learn more about uh, her work and her new book coming out later this year on the Wilson Center website at www.wilsoncenter.org. And of course, to see our latest reports and policy recommendations on countries in the region, such as Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India, visit our website at www.uscirf.gov. As always, thank you for tuning in today, and we'll see you next time on USERV Spotlight. To learn more about USERF and about global religious freedom concerns, visit usurf.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F dot gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at U-S-C-I-R-F. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another USERF Spotlight.